Jerusalem Talks MD, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the University of Notre Dame with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through the initiatives and presence of the university in Jerusalem and the region at large. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu. Hello, everyone. My name is Daniel Schmack, and I'm the executive director of the University of Notre Dame at Tantour, the campus that houses both the Ecumenical Institute for Theological Studies and one of the global gateways of the University of Notre Dame. On behalf of the team, I would like to welcome you all to the second episode of Jerusalem Talks ND, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the Gateway with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through our various initiatives. In his most recent book, Mount Tabor, Sarah Nusebi was able to grab me by the heart by asking us to challenge, at the very beginning of the book, the notion that the identity of human beings is like that of apples and oranges. Yes, we tend to say, even some of the more enlightened among us, that we should respect each other and not to try to change each other, given some are apples and some are oranges. Yet, that cannot be the case, argues Nusaybi. Even if we do differ, our souls intermingle with those of others as we discover how our identities melt into a multitude of unifying ones. Families, tribes, people, religions, that on the one hand form that wholesome I, but also show that that I is not an island, but part of the main, of the continent. Most importantly, that identity is in continuous flux. That means that we're not just parts of many mains and continents, but these mains and continents themselves are changing as well. We move between these identities, writes Nusaybi, like on a pendulum. In a country in which people are either Arabs or Jews, Palestinians or Israelis, Christians or Muslims, people that acknowledge that they are swinging on that pendulum, are seen as people with identity issues in the best case, or as traitors in the worst case. Tonight we have the privilege of listening to two intellectuals that are part of a clear specific mainland on the one hand, a main, but I dare to say that their identities melt on a much higher sphere than the arbitrary, arbitrary race-driven ones. Avraham of Rumburg is best known for his career in Israeli politics and activism. He was a member of the Knesset, chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, and speaker of the Knesset. Sarin Nusaybi is a Palestinian professor of philosophy with degrees from Oxford University and Harvard. He was a leader and activist for nonviolent civil disobedience during the First Intifada. He rose to become the president of Al-Quds University and the rep representative of the Palestinian Authority in Jerusalem. Both Borg and Nusaybi have published multiple books and articles. We're proud that both of them serve as adjunct faculty members here at the Global Gateway of the University of Notre Dame in Jerusalem. Avrom, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Daniel. Good evening, Sari. We're an old couple. Uh, talk about yourself, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Which means you do not deny that we're a couple. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, we know each other since... Couples a long time ago. Yeah, since <laughs> just, for the, uh, just for the due process, since the first time the liberal Zionist Israelis dared to address 
Palestinians' rights at the midst of the first intifada, a group of Jeru mainly Jerusalemite, courageous intellectuals led by Seri and our beloved late Faisal Husseini, and a group that I had the privilege to belong to um, at the Israeli parliament met together in a process that was very new to many of us, was not well received by the establishment then, and eventually led to Oslo. So it's, it's a long process all over the place. And every time sitting with Seri is an inspiration because never mind how he will try to run away, sneak from the responsibility, he would inspire. He would enrich the conversation. He would leave us with something which is so good. So let's begin with Jerusalem. Okay. I read a lot about you in Jerusalem, and I would like to begin with some concrete things. You live at the house of your parents. So, um, should I say something? No. <laughs> um, please, where do you live? So I live in the house of my parents, and I grew up in that house. I wasn't born in Jerusalem. I was born in Damascus, as you probably know. And um, at the time when I was born, my family was on my mother's side, at least, had left the country uh, during the um, conflict, and had gone first to Lebanon, then to uh, Syria. I was born there, and then a couple of years later, I think I wasn't around, so this is all sort of you know hearsay. <laughs> I was brought back with my parents to Jerusalem. And as far as I remember, you know, this is where that house is where I grew up. And it was right on the edge of the of no man's land. And Which is the in-between zone that was between the Jordanian part of Jerusalem and the Israeli part of Jerusalem. That's right, absolutely. And the, um, you know, the back garden, uh, uh, was actually, uh, you know, reached right up to the to the to the no man's uh, land uh, where the United Nations was. And anyway, so there was nothing. There was an old building. It was it had been destroyed in the '48 war, uh, an old courthouse or something like this in the in the terrain. And then there were about there was there was about uh, maybe a thousand meters between me and uh, on the other side of this sort of uh, place that was probably had a lot of uh, mines in the ground. Uh, there was Me'asharim, or one part of Me'asharim. Which I is could... the Jerusalemite most uh, explicit, ultra-Orthodox, conservative neighborhood. So you say, but I had no idea <laughs> at the time. But all the idea I had was, you know, I looked across from the garden uh, over there, and um, now, what I saw were, uh, you know, Jews, uh, all Haredi Jews or whatever. For them, when they looked back, they saw you. And they, yeah. when they looked back, saw me. And sometimes with my school friends, we'd, you know, I'd tell them, come, let's look. And, you know, we'd get, gather together and look, and there they are. And it was a strange, it was really a strange uh, vision, uh, as they probably had of me. Now, I'll cut the, short, the, the, the story short so I can go on with whatever you want to go on with. But stay there for a second, okay? Stay I want there to move for on. a second. You're a Damascus, you Damascus Palestinian who grew up seeing the ultra, Jewish ultra-Orthodoxy, 
Okay, but there was a no man's land between you and them. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. so this, these are all definers. I mean, I take it when you cross the street in Jerusalem, they ask you, Jibel Hawiya, show me, show me your idea. So I would ask you, show me your idea, not necessarily the document, but what is your idea? What is your idea as a Jerusalemite? How do you define it? You jumped too quickly. Let me go back to my story. <laughs> Would you like to take the, the reign of the interview and ask me a couple of questions? I'd love to ask you. Go on. Put you in an interrogation chair. Go on. Tell you, tell you give me your ID, Avram. I left no, the city. I think it's impossible. I, I, I'll finish the story very quickly. Please. But, but I think that's very important for what you're asking me. And the point was this. Uh, the, other, the other thing in the middle, in that, in that no man's land, was an old vine. And I could see it growing every year with, the, with, the, with, the, uh, with things growing on it, you know, the stuff that you eat, grapes, and then withering away, you know, as one year after another just passed. Then there was the war, 67 war. And the first thing I did after I'd come back I came back after the war, I wasn't here, was to go to that uh, wall where I was standing all the time looking to at cross. the other side, jumped over into no man's land and started to walk, taking one step at a time, first toward, towards the old building. I wanted first to taste the uh, grapes hmm. and then to go on, I wanted to reach the street on the opposite side where I, you know, I used to see all these Jews on the other side, you know, wearing black, looking back at me. And I'd take a few steps in the no man's land. I'd stop, look back, and try to see myself, imagine what I must have looked like, seen from the other side. And I would walk further and further until I got to the street, tiny street, with, uh, you know, tiny cars going every now and again and buses and so on. And I got there and I stood and I watched from there back and tried to imagine how I looked like to the people looking at me from that side. And, you know, for me, this was, I'm, I must tell you this, one of the most important journeys I ever had in my life. We'll go to and some other journeys of you into our life. It is but this, this is the one. This is the one that actually you have to take yourselves each day with everyone. It's, mm. a, it's a major journey. And when, and, I ask you, and when I ask you again, you are a Jerusalemite, an ancient um, pillar of the Jerusalemite Palestinian community. Uh, what, what, is, what, is, what is your idea? What are the components of your identity? Ah. I want to brag a little bit here. Please. Uh, the bragging I want to do is about my daughter, who uh, was commissioned to write uh, nonfiction about uh, our namesake, my family name. Which? And she was just awarded uh, one of three, uh, you know, in something called, what was it? Uh, sent uh, something, some award, some book award. The, the, the important a, a bit about that is that she gets 10,000 pounds from the award. Who cares <laughs> and, about the name? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's important. You shouldn't sort of dismiss, you know, the bits that you get out of doing the work that you do. Anyway, but she wrote this book, 
based on the namesake, our name Nusebe. Which, which is a female name. Which is the female name. So she, her book was a little bit about identity, a little bit about this particular woman, Nusebe, from the Prophet's time, about our family's history from that time, and apparently about gender and about this and about that and racism and Palestinian nationalism. I still have to read the book, but it was a good I book. mean, the, the Nusebe that you carry the name was one of the four le female leaders of the 14, uh, My God, Afro, uh, 14 head of, heads of tribes who supported the prophet. Yeah, I don't know right? what sort of woman she was. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, a, grand, a grandma of yours. Okay, yeah. so one layer is an ancient Muslim root. So she was, yes, the family Another is. one is. What your is family, if we are a family name, is a very ancient Muslim family of Jerusalem, okay. are the guardians of the keys of the Holy Sepulchre. You know, that's what people say. I, I prefer to look at it another way. I think, you know, we've been working as doormen, doorkeepers. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> the gatekeepers, uh, we yeah. We go and, and open up the door in the morning, close it up in the evening. And it's a job. And I don't know where it came from. We, we claim, I mean, the different stories. And, uh, and we claim, you know, it's been there for many, many years since, since the Caliph Omar came to Jerusalem. But a lot of people say since Salah al-Din. Um, it's, it's not really clear. I haven't studied myself the... the but, it's a, but it's a part of a, a built-in dialogue a that you have in it's your family. The yes. first time I walked into your father's diwan. It's a small house. Yeah, yes, but there was an, a huge ancient Quran opened there, right? On a kind of a triangular oh, stand. Yes, yes. Okay. My father would read the Quran instead of praying most of the time. Instead. Instead. And he believed that, uh, well, as you probably know, you know, he couldn't bend down to pray. Because he was wounded in 48 That's by right. an Israeli bullet, which That's actually right. paralyzed his leg, right? Okay, it was, it was uh, cut off a couple of times, yeah. so he had, yeah, he had a problem. So because of us, he couldn't pray. I think partly, and partly he also uh, liked to, you know, have a drink in the evening. <laughs> And so, <laughs> and so actually, Aram, what happened was that um, he believed that it was necessary to pray, but that uh, you could pray in the way that you thought was best. And for him, what was best in praying was to read the Quran, read it, okay. and spend time reading it instead of just praying sort of in a kind of uh, routine, routine kind of way to read. He'd spend an hour doing that, doing that in the evening, then come out, tell my mother, please get me my glass of whiskey. Okay. That's how it so was. So it was a dialogue. That's what I remember. Okay. I'll come back to, maybe we'll have time to go back to Cor you, you and Quran, you and, you and Islam, etc. But we're still in Jerusalem. Okay. I read somewhere that you said, that you thought at once that at the time to be a Palestinian scholar in Jerusalem might be even a bit romantic because at this city there is a permanent looking for or seeking for the truth. Is it still there? Well, it's a very difficult business uh, having a mind in Jerusalem, as you know. 
uh, a mind always not only inspires you to think, it also imposes questions on you. And the questions are not only about facts, but about values. And so you grow up in a situation in which you are confronted constantly with having to assess the facts that you come across and the values that you, ha you hold in your heart. And that's very difficult, and it's very difficult to translate all of this into scholarship. Um, yes, I think that in theory, Jerusalem, one looks to it. I know many people look to it, have done so in, in the past and still do, as a kind of gateway to knowledge and to truth. And it's been looked at this in this way by, by many uh, seekers of knowledge, by scholars, by uh, religious uh, figures, by, and, but it's a very sort of uh, difficult task. It's, uh, it's to be in Jerusalem and to try and get there is actually extremely difficult because of the facts that you face all the time and the values that you have to think about all the time. There's and colliding, constant, colliding and constant, into each other. Constant conflict. And Is uh, that why you later described Jerusalem as a beautiful withered flower? It's possible. Um, I'm not sure why it is withering. I think it's a, it's a natural development that happens. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily happen to the city, maybe it happens in one's uh, own vision of the city as we grow older. Um, but certainly the, uh, the ideal version of the Jerusalem I had as I was growing up is sort of changing in front of my eyes all the time and it's looking less and less ideal, uh, less and less attractive. You know, I still love it but it's not as beautiful as I had uh, imagined. Physically, you mean, the body Physi of it. Physically and in terms of content, in terms of content. Now, by content, I just don't mean just the Israelis and the Palestinians and the conflicts and the wars. And I mean even the kind of people that we all are and have become, whether on the Israeli side or the Palestinian side. Um, I feel the... Society on both sides, Jews, Arabs, all of us here in Jerusalem, um, just are not up to the standard of the city, basically, and to the ideal that we have of the city. And that's, that's sort of heartbreaking when you look at it. Once, once you described one of the standards of the city is actually the commitment not to shed blood. You spoke about the binding of Isaac and the binding of Ishmael, that the message by the end of it is not the binding and the slaughtering and the sacrifixion, but the fact that it didn't happen. Absolutely. And you argue that? Well, I thought this is a, a very important story message uh, to us. Uh, of course, Jews and uh, Muslims disagree about uh, who was to be sacrificed of Abraham's sons. And they argue disagree about where this was to happen. 
But you know, if you look at the story as a whole, and you think of it in abstraction of both uh, sons, but just focusing on the fact that this is the son of Abraham, regardless which one, and that Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, he was willing to do so, and the fact that God intervened and then said, uh, you know, here's a sheep or here's a goat, go for it. For me, you know, that meant basically that one should not shed one's blood over a piece of land or, of, or over a rock or whatever it is. Yes, I think it's a clear message from God if it is God who sent it. Which is opposite to what happens today. Everybody is celebrating the bloodshedding or yes. the extremism yes. or the anti-message of the binding. Because people are far more in love with rocks and material stuff than they are with their spiritual life. They are more interested in imposing themselves as human beings and possessing uh, material uh, objects than they are interested in uh, reaching out to God, which I see as a spiritual journey and not a material one. And in all events, it makes no sense to me to shed blood in the name of God. So actually there is the city in which everybody, I mean, every partner would like to have a monopoly over sanctity, over God, my God or no God, um, over places. And there is Serinoseba Jerusalemism, which says it's about relinquish and sharing rather than possessing and monopolizing. 100%. I think that describes my attitude to this. Knowing you for so many years, and sorry for the confession, but loving you as well. Oh my God, what sort of confession? It's not your God, it's me. I mean, you can call me a vroom, okay? I think if there is one power, public power that you have, is your capability to identify shades and nuances in situations. Not, every, it's not everything is a concrete block of something. Are there today shades and nuances in Jerusalem, or it's a monochromatic reality? No, it's uh, full of shades. Uh, it's a combination. Um, and I believe that seeing it this way allows you also to see the cracks into possible futures, and that's very important. Explain, please. Um, the fact that people are not fixed, as you were saying, right? No, I think Daniel was saying uh, fixed in their identities in the sense of who they think they are, and that there are many different aspects and levels in each one of us allows us, allows there to be room for uh, contacting each other, reaching out for each other, seeing where it is possible to uh, cooperate with each other, uh, enables us to understand each other better. Um, you know, I think that, yes, uh, we are different. And, uh, but this doesn't mean that there aren't many things that we share. And I think we should celebrate our differences 
uh, our natural differences. I think they should be celebrated, but not allow those differences to uh, create uh, divisions between us. So it's, it's a kind of, uh, not a puzzle, but it's, uh, it's uh, a challenge to be able to, uh, on the one hand, accept, celebrate, respect, uh, be open to the differences that exist, and on the other hand, to see where those differences may cause problems and to see how to overcome them. And all the time, try to uh, steer a course in which, even as different uh, individuals or communities, people can still, hand in hand, create a future that's good for all. A generation ago, or a literature generation ago, two biographies, autobiographies, were introduced to the, Israel, to the regional reader, Amos Oz and yours. Amos Oz spoke about himself in the Israeli society, and you spoke about him in the Israeli society. <laughs> okay? And uh, at a time, you didn't, with the up, one, Once Upon a Land, Something like that. Yes, once upon a land, you, you tell your story, including crossing this no man's land field, yes, yes. etc. But you actually maybe wanted to put a mirror in front of our in front of everybody's eye. Look at the mirror. It's not Serenoseba image you see there, but you see yourself actually. And tell me tell me what does that mean to you? So when I read your book then, I I Admire the fact that during the 60s, when you continued crossing the field, you ended up in a kibbutz. I mean, you went further. And you succeeded to see the not ugly Israeli who is sitting on your fields as a Palestinian. In some locations that were only 20 years ago, part of the glorious Palestinian heritage and legacy. And still, you saw the, the, the values behind it, okay? And you made then a distinction between them and the settlers, between the kibbutz settlers and the West Bank settlers. It's true. So uh, let me, you know, one of my worst, uh, I have many bad uh, characteristics, or, uh, and one of them is memory, but let me try going back a little bit in my memory. So as I was growing up in that house, my parents, my father was, and my mother were sort of engaged in social and political life. And uh, we always had visitors. They always, you know, I grew up in a, in a situation where there were always political discussions and arguments and disagreements and so on. And um, always, uh, I grew up always uh, being told about Palestine lost, the lost Palestine, the Palestine that lay over there in the West. And so I would hear those stories and I would have imaginations about what sort of Palestine that was, that I couldn't see standing Palestine over there. And I would look from the garden and I'd see these people and it didn't sort of correspond. And that's why I wanted to go and cross the boundary. And that's what made me cross, to discover what it was. How can I reconcile between the stories about this wonderful 
orange groves on the one hand, the fact that we lost the war so quickly, so easily on the other hand. And um, so I wanted to go into the Israeli society, especially the kibbutz. Now, why the kibbutz? Because the kibbutz at the time was proposed as the ideal vision of the new Israeli. It was, there's a lot of talk about that, and I wanted to be part of that. And um, so I, yes, I tried to get into one, and I got into one, and I stayed not for very long, maybe for a month or two months, but I tried my best to understand the people that had been there for all those years, and building up the society they wanted to build. And I really admired them, actually. Uh, in fact, only a couple of years ago, I think, uh, I went and visited again. Not all of the kibbutzniks were there, some of them had passed on, some of them had actually left the kibbutz, uh, but I found some. And, you know, I just went around, I stayed the night. I was invited by people I knew. And, um, you know, it's something, you know, I respected what they stood for. I respected what they used to tell me. I used to listen to what they had to say, you know, and uh, I'd listen to their dreams, I'd listen to their ideas. And, you know, I, I, I grew to know uh, a little bit what was inside of them. I wasn't looking now at them as I was when I stood at the end of the garden. So you were attracted to the universalist, cooperative, solidarity. The values, the values, the people, the values the people had, the histories, um, the pains, the hopes. You know, I listened to the stories. And the settlers? No, in the West Bank, settlers in the West Bank are a totally different story because, um, yeah, well, let me contradict myself, uh, not on purpose, but I have to, uh, you know, be honest about my thoughts to you. So one day I was coming back from Jordan and crossing the bridge. And as I was doing so, uh, I don't like to cross the bridge uh, the way that people do, so I pay some money. And uh, you get a VIP to cross the bridge, which I paid, and so you are handled by... Uh, In Israel, yeah. you pay to the VIP. It's not a VIP mm. pay to you. <laughs> okay. You pay to the VIP. And uh, so this uh, young lady was sort of uh, helping me to go, you know, to go through, to come through back. I was coming back from a man. And uh, so at one stage, I asked her where she was from. And she told me she was somewhere in the Jordan Valley and that she'd you know, been uh, born there and she grew up there. And it shocked me when I heard it. Why? Because it was in an area where my father's land had been confiscated by the Israelis back in 67. And, you know, I hadn't yet been able, still I'm not able, to retrieve it. Uh, and for, for me, of course, the, the, the settlement there was something very direct, uh, you know, meant something very directly to me. But I was listening to her when I asked her, she told me, and uh, asking her to tell me about it. And she started to describe living there. And she started to describe the landscape, the sand, the trees, the sunset, the what's it. And um, your, you father, know, your father's stories. 
And I, I, I was, I sort of fell back into myself, you know. I felt, um, I mean, this lady is young girl, at, you know, maybe she was 19, 20, was born there, was uh, growing up there. And you can't just reject the fact, deny it, that, you know, there's a human being with all their emotions and feelings. Now, of course, it's my land, right? And my father's land. Okay. So there's a conflict. There's a conflict. But at one stage, to go back to what we were saying before, uh, I came to the conclusion that one way to, to go over, the, to get over the conflict is, is the two-state solution, is to say, okay, there's 67, there's the thing across, and that's yours. And this is ours. And, you know, just let's work on the basis of this. And I thought maybe, still think, that maybe this is the best way to resolve the moral issues that even uh, till today one has to overcome about people like that living in such a place. Today, today the end of 2022, you have an Israeli partner, is it possible for a Zionist, any Zionist to make peace with the Palestinians and under any parameters? Yeah, I think any Zionist, however terrible they are, and whatever Palestinians, however terrible they are. are, they can still make peace, I think. Uh, I mean, don't just give up. Uh, it's, uh, and terrible people can, can do to good, good things. Uh, how it happens, I have no idea, but um, I, personally believe in miracles and I think miracles can and by miracles that, that, I mean this is logic miracles of human beings we can make things happen I think and so I think it's possible always to get things done your journey into the Israeli society journeys because it didn't end there you had political partnerships with Ami Ayalon, our beloved friend, and wherever possible, okay? You never give up on it, okay? Even, you even visited our jails. Thank as you, yes. administrative detainee in order to... It was kind of you to invite me. We hosted me. you, yes. okay, in some of our institutions, okay? Um, now imagine you are my tourist guide. And I'm an Israeli who would like to cross the no man's land and like to go to know better the Palestinian society. Where should I go? Whom should I meet as an Israeli? Uh, I think just go and meet a normal, any normal average Palestinian living anywhere, a village anywhere, and just stay with them for a week and live their lives uh, in the context that we have. You will, you will taste everything. And, you know, your heart will, will immediately grasp what they feel. Uh, listen to them, listen to the stories they tell. Don't just see them as, don't see us, I know you don't, as terrorists. And as uh, crazy people or as people that have just dropped from the sky from nowhere. You know, go and listen. Sit down with people. And I think you'll, you'll learn a lot from us. And uh, you'll be surprised. Uh, I believe that we, as a Palestinian people, have a lot of tradition, a lot of history, a lot of good things. We have a lot of values, a lot of morals. We have a lot of hopes and dreams. And they're not necessarily inconsistent with anybody else. 
And I think we are also rational and very rational and we are practical. And I think that it is possible to build a common future for both Israelis and Palestinians. And, you know, I don't even necessarily say it should be this way or that, but it should be forward. That's the only direction I say one should go for. Let's assume many of us visit you, many of you visit us, and we go beyond the mosques. Today, most of Israelis believe that all Palestinians are suicide bombers. Most of Palestinians believe that the Israelis are soldiers or settlers, and nobody crosses the no man's land, the field outside of your window, any window. But assume one, assuming one day we shall cross it and we visit each other and we meet the pragmatism and the pain and the hopes and, and, and everything. Is it possible that after the structural solution, be it one state, two states, five states, whatever it is, there will be a supra-identity which is shared by all of us? Well, I mean, you know, we are all the same. We are all human beings, regardless, even today. Uh, we are, I think, I'm, however... I'm not at all sure I share it about some of my colleagues, <laughs> but... Okay, let's look, leave we're, it we're, as... We're all, look, I said before, I think one of the, one of the things uh, that... I have grown up to appreciate is the differences between people as well as the common things. And I think the differences must be celebrated. We must sort of accept them and, and enjoy them and celebrate them, as I said. But it doesn't mean that we are not the same from another uh, point of view. And so, yes, we can, we can, we can do it. Uh, but it needs work. And by the way, you know, you speak uh, from a kind of, you know, as if it, you, you're pessimistic about the, the future, which you shouldn't be. Why? Because what you said about now, the two sides looking at each other the way we do, uh, you think maybe makes it impossible to uh, look for a, for a, for a new uh, beginning. But actually, imagine how it was before. I mean, it was even worse worse before we started before you came before we talked as you mentioned in the early 80s before people started breaking barriers um you know we wouldn't even accept the notion the arabs and the palestinians of the existence of israel at all and imagine how things have changed not only among palestinians among arabs in general as you know so you know things change and okay it's downhill now now we think that you're terrible and you think we're terrible. Two T's. Um, but we thought of like this before of each other and we, we got over it. So it's possible. And, you know, work has to be done at the grassroots, but work has to be done at the top. I don't mean necessarily and only God at the top, but at the top of the political hierarchies. And I think it's possible to do things. We just have to keep hoping and working. Optimism or pessimism will be a different evening. I'll just tell you that I do not share my mom's notion of 
optimism, we used to ask her, Mom, what are you, an optimist or pessimist? She said, me, moi? Of course I'm an optimist. Today is much better than tomorrow. <laughs> okay, so I do not share this kind of optimism. But having said that... Well, would... you are justified yourself not to be uh, an optimist in that sense. And I think, you know, maybe if I had been a Jew, like you, I may not be as optimistic. But, you know, given this, I still think that nonetheless, one must uh, stick to, be, to the hope that we can do things together. Uh, I'd like to push back a little bit, okay? Push gently, please, okay. Of course, of course, I know. I mean, you're an optimist, I cannot push hardly, okay? <laughs> um, okay, you put the ground layer as universalism. We're all human beings and therefore we are equal. This is, let's say, the, the ground floor. And the top floor, we are all, at least here in the region, we all share the same notion of, this, of the oneness of the, of the, uh, of the creator with different interpretations of Christian, Muslim, Jewish, whatever, and, all, and even the same uh, mythologies and stories and molding experiences. So we are closer than meets the eye. So this is an argument I can understand both bottom up and top down. But then when you look at the region in general, and Jerusalem in particular, I put it as a question. We were brought up, both of us, by our parents and by our private and personal experience as part of the national discourse between two national communities. So as difficult as it was, there was a progress. What happens nowadays, isn't it so that the religious identities are taking over the national ones? And here it is both internal intra-Palestine and intra-Israeli, and there it is much more difficult to be universities because particularism is so violent and so aggressive and so compelling. Well, you know, there's something, uh, of course, true in what you say. When uh, both sides only were guided by nationalist thinking, maybe, arguably, things were easier uh, to resolve. Uh, maybe today, when things are guided by religious thinking, it looks like uh, they are more becoming more difficult. But you can also look at it the other way. Because when things were guided by nationalist thinking, what did we try to depend on? What did we reach out for? We tried to reach out for values, which we, for secular values, moral secular values. And we thought maybe these will guide us in making peace between the two sides. Today, we go for God. And it's possible, quite possible, that whether on the Jewish side or the Muslim side or the Christian side or whatever religious side, you know, there we will be able to find the values, the values in the different religions that will reunite us. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Could be, of course, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. However you put it, I insist on remaining an optimist, not about today and yesterday, but about tomorrow. I want to go back to the abyss between your father's Quran and whiskey. Okay. Okay, let's, let's explore 
this gap for a minute, okay? Mm. It's a beautiful bridge between identity, tradition, maybe even sentiment, and real life. And it's in a way very rational. Maybe from this gap, you actually started to explore the theological rationalism, which originally this is where you've been with the Muslim uh, uh, rational, uh, the rational, uh, rational theology of the Mu'tazila, yeah. okay, which actually argued something very interesting. How do we take the right, the righteousness of an omnipotent God with the presence of evilness in the world? How do we bridge between the Quran and the whiskey? Are you suggesting whiskey is an evil? You know, the Muslims, as with everybody else, I imagine, as with Jews, as with Christians, as, you know, all these Semitic, the three of these religions, have had a very rich and varied history, or histories. And so you had the rationalists among this group and among that group, and you also had the mystics in this group and that group. And on the Muslim side, you had people who uh, drank, people who danced, people who were trying to reach God through their mystic whatever. And there were people who tried to uh, reach him through uh, rational thinking. And, um, you know, politics, whatever it was, eventually, uh, eventually unraveled, however, whatever the history it was that the Muslims have had and are having until today. And the same, I think, with, with other religions. Um, so, I mean, it, it, there's no secret, there's no mystery about it, you know, whether it's Mu'tazilites or it's Sufis or it's whoever. The very simple issue, the very simple fact is that we have the capability, human beings, we have the capability of making our lives better. It's just as simple as that. And very often, we do make it better for each other. And if you look at the different, uh, even in the Israeli-Palestinian context, if you look at, yes, you, there are a lot of terrorism, there's a lot of killing, there's a lot of this and terrible things happening, but there are many, many other things that are happening. Uh, look at this discussion we're having, you and me. I mean, you know, this is re really something to be celebrated. It is you, an Israeli, me and, and a Palestinian. And I can assure you, you can enjoy having a conversation with me as I am with you, far more than you can enjoy it necessarily with other, others of your peers, you know, Jews or whatever. And similarly on my side. And this you will see across, across, the, across the rainbow. Look at all the good things that are happening between people, Jews and Arabs. Even today, even in the worst circumstance, and they far outnumber the things that are bad. So what and this is something Gandhi said when he was actually asked, aren't the terrible things that are happening, the wars and everything, don't they actually make us um, pessimistic about the future? He told them, look at all the good things that are happening in the world. You know, if you add them up, they far outnumber the things that are bad that are happening. So don't lose hope. So you say, the humanity progresses. There is less illiteracy, less hunger, less malaria, 
less uh, child, uh, child uh, I mean, uh, child death, life expectancy is longer, etc. So we move on. That's not what's, you know, that's not where it is. What, so where, where, it is, is it? where it is is in the spirit. Where it is is in our ability to see that we are capable of building a better life, not in the sense that we can, you know, have comfortable chairs or, or whatever, but in the sense that we can have better relations between us, respect so. each other, live as commonly, as, as beneficially to each other as we can. And this, I think, is developing. Will you agree that maybe the partition lines, according to your assumption, which I like and love and live accordingly, that the partition line is not between the Jewish collective and the Palestinian collective, but goes oh, in yes. a different place, which is you and me who share this set of values versus people in my community and people in your community which oppose these values because of extremism, violence, zealotry or whatever. Yeah, and this is natural, not just about between Israelis and Palestinians across the world, you know. I mean, you know, people get on with each other, you know, in, in spite of or regardless of their backgrounds, their gender, their races, whatever. People can get together. Souls can intertwine, regardless of their racial or religious or national uh, origins. But if I want to see it in a concrete way. I look at people at the West. They marry each other beyond faith, beyond origin, beyond ethnicity. People marry each other, okay? A lot. Marry in, marry out, marry in face, out face, different ethnicities, etc. Do you see a situation in which this capability of appreciating, living together, cooperating, empowering each other, creates also families that within the inner structure are actually bi-morolingual. Aren't there already, I mean, cases of Jews and uh, Muslims and Christians? Five and a half. Five and a half what? Yeah, people. <laughs> it's I not yet a phenomenon to it's the not numbers a of a free, it's not of a free society. So I think, you know, there's no reason why it will not happen. I mean, it's not something that's uh, naturally impossible. So I don't see why it can't be done. And I don't see why it will not happen in the future. And I think, you know, maybe it's a question of just working on ourselves on the Jewish side, on the Muslim side, on the Christian side, working more on ourselves to bring ourselves, all of us, closer and closer to God. Be my tourist guide in Jerusalem, not the spiritual one, not the virtual one, the concrete one. Tell me a corner in Jerusalem that when I tell you Jerusalem, you say it is there. This is the place. Jerusalem is there. Place. It's not in any one particular location. I understand. Still. No, no, no. Don't forget Sorry, about a forget about. For Give me a bakery. Give me a pub. I refuse. Give me a I refuse. dancing hall. I refuse. Give me I think these are very negative ways of appreciating place. You appreciate atmosphere. You appreciate, if you appreciate Jerusalem, God's connection to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's connection to God, if that's how you think. But you don't appreciate this particular bakery uh, or this particular bar or this particular place to pray. 
you know, these are not the things that are important about the city, in my opinion. It sounds beautiful from an abstract point of view. Because it is abstract. And I still love Zalatimo Bakery. Okay. So, okay, you know, okay. go and eat Zalatimo. I mean, nobody says no, but, uh, but, but that's not where Jerusalem is, I don't think. And I think, it's, it's, uh, I think we have to learn on the Israeli side, on the Jewish side, on the Muslim side, on the Christian side, just to appreciate the fact of the connection with God. Are you going back actually to the period in which we didn't know what to do with this corpus separatum of Jerusalem. So under Clinton, we said, <laughs> you know what, maybe it would be God's sovereignty rather than Jordanian, Israeli, Palestinian. And therefore, it's not only a spiritual, but also a political approach. You know, when you mentioned Ayalon before, and when we thought about the, that area, uh, we said, you know, you Jews claim this is God and your connection to God here, and we Muslims say God and it is our connection. Well, if we're serious about this, let us say this belongs to God. So this area is God's sovereignty. So don't come either you as national possessors or claimants, or we as Palestinian, Muslim, whatever, Christian claimants say this is ours. Let it be God's. If we really believe it's God's, let us say this is the sovereignty of God. i tell you what is the problem with you, this. The problem is that human beings cannot do this because they're too possessive. This is right, but from a Zionist paradigmatic point of view, there is another problem. The Zionist movement refuses to accept the notion that there is a God, but we fully accept the promise of this non-existing God to give us the land. So, uh, there we have a problem. Well, I mean, you know, if you like, we can hold the convention, ask God to appear in it and discuss the matter with him and ask I him. I delegate the responsibility to you and <laughs> i tell you something, Sari. Yeah. I, I thought a lot about this conversation. It's not our first time and God forbid not the last one. And this issue of optimist-pessimist crossed my mind because in in our conversation, sometimes I was the optimist and you were the pessimist, sometimes the, the, the other way around, and sometimes we are on the same page. And I thought about, when all during this evening, I thought it about the poem of Mahmoud Darwish, who described Jerusalem as the capital of the false hope. And in a way, you do not accept it. I was thinking about Mahmoud Darwish the other day and wondering what he had in mind uh, in his poetry. Uh, certainly, he has, did, does not have God in mind, did not have God in mind. Um, he was, I think, a nationalist, if anything. And so, yes, he had a problem about seeing uh, Jerusalem or Palestine, perhaps the way I see it. Um, when I say I have God in mind, I say that in the sense, uh, in a sense I'm not sure about. I don't really know. But I do have him in mind. And having him in mind makes me believe that things will be fine if we work on ourselves, which I think we can, to make our lives fine. 
Listen, I have no clue whether there is a God or there is no God. I mean, no, no. But I have no doubt that if there is a God, she created the world with the tool of disagreement. Because if I agree with you and you are in consent with me and we have a total understanding with them, everything is boring. The water is still, malaria is coming. Only when we disagree and we sharpen our differences, something new is born between us. Great, I agree with that. So I agree with the disagreement. And I think that it is through the way that you describe such disagreement that we can actually build together a better world. I can't do it by myself. At the beginning of this academic year, we share students, Yeah. right? So I told them, listen, in years to come, you will ask, who were your teachers? Mm. Maybe you will mention me, maybe you will not mention me, but you have the privilege to study with one of the greatest person I've ever met, Zerinu Seiba. My God. Tudaraba. Thank you, thank you, Avram. But, you know, now, now that this is finished, I must repay him the, the compliment <laughs> of his really being an icon as far as I'm concerned in not only Israeli, but in Jewish society and in the Jewish. And I was asking my son, Jamal, you remember him? We came, of to, course. Your, we came to your house. That's right. And had lunch. And spoke and, Russian. And spoke Russian. I, feel I didn't speak Russian. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think, you know, I must say this, but you know, you have been a major source of my hope. If you ask me, why am I optimistic? Well, you are the reason. There, and people like you. Thank you very much. Um, questions? We'll take uh, a couple of questions from the crowd. So if anybody wants to ask a question either to Zerzevi or to Avram or to both, please come here to the mic. Okay, and, and Avram is much better at answering questions. As you dis <laughs> discovered in this discussion, I'm not really good at answering questions. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> don't, don't belittle yourself. Uh, Cameron. Uh, Andrew wants to ask a question. <laughs> okay, so uh, I guess I want to ask both of you oh. in terms of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. If we look at the extremes of these, um, do you think it's possible to convince, let's say, the terrorist, the soldier, the settler, um, to celebrate their differences with the other? And if you think it's possible, how can it be done? So Avram, go ahead. I'll save my political answer for the classroom, okay? <laughs> uh, not here because it's a, different, it's a different venue. I will say as follows. We Israelis, I do not know the Palestinian psyche well enough in order to answer it, but we Israelis, we respond very, very well to traumas. As long as we don't have to take sides or to take a decision, we don't move. Once we have no other option, eventually we decide. 
73, before 73 war, which was the most traumatic one in the history of the state of Israel, the Israeli government refused the peace proposal of the Egyptians. So it took a war and 25,000 uh, um, Israeli victims, don't forget, but without counting the Egyptians one, tens of thousands of injured and, uh, and casualties. And four years later, we made peace with Egypt. It took the first intifada to persuade us to come to the table and sit together. It was the first Gulf War to bring us to Madrid and talk together. One day, there will be a, chain, a change in the flow of the river. I hope the trauma will not be too big. I hope the price will be a one that both societies can contain. But then if the concepts and the values and the hope and the moral dimension of what Sari introduced here today will be ready in place and fleshed up in a political manner, which means not just an abstract, yes, we have a good idea, but I have the political tool to implement it. Once this will happen and we shall be ready with the containers, we shall contain the new reality. Both sides, by the way. I concur. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Tadaraba. Shukran Jazeera. Thank you for listening to another episode of Jerusalem Docs ND. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu.